Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. I want to encourage you to stand if you have the ability. Matthew, recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes the following. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him on your way to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Three things I think we see clearly in the text this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, would encourage you to do so is this. Jesus clearly puts his finger on our murderous hearts. Jesus puts his finger, so to speak, on our murderous hearts. Look back at verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever commits a murder shall be liable to judgment. I was thinking this week in my study about the atrocity of murder. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't long after sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3, just one chapter later as a matter of fact, Genesis chapter 4 verse 8, that Cain, in a moment of selfish, impassioned anger, killed his brother Abel. I was just doing some internet hunting this week. Of the 30 cities with the highest murder rate per 1,000 residents, St. Louis, Missouri, ranks number four. It seems as though you can hardly turn the pages of the paper or watch the evening news without being confronted with the reality of murder. When it comes to the news, if it bleeds, it leads. Right? That's what sells. So it kind of draws people in, and we get so accustomed to it, we become desensitized to what it is. We become desensitized to the atrocity of murder. God gives us the first specific prohibition to murder in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, when he says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, whoever commits murder, whoever sheds the blood of man by his blood, shall it be shed. For God made man in his own image. You see, God in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, gives us both the divine penalty for murder and he gives us the reason for its seriousness. You see, the one who takes the life of another is to be likewise punished by death. And the reason for such a severe penalty is clear. And the reason is because man is made in God's image. Man is made in God's image. To take another person's life is to snuff out the sacredness of the image of God in another Solomon tells us there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, among other things. God hates murder. Interestingly enough, though, God has not scrubbed his word of the evil of murder. Both the Old and the New Testaments are filled with the names of murderers. Cain, 
Pharaoh, Elimelech, Joab, the Amalekites, David, Moses, Absalom, Jezebel, Jehu, Joash, Manasseh, many others in the Old Testament. And then we speed up to the New Testament. We get names like Herod and Judas and the high priest and Barabbas and Paul and Herodias and her daughter. You see, biblical history, like human history, is filled with murderers. Filled with murderers. Look back at verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, the specific commandment Jesus is dealing with here, remember, what, what we're dealing with here and for the coming weeks is an explanation of what Jesus means when he says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees if you ever want to step foot in the kingdom. Jesus is upping the ante here uh, in our text this morning and in the coming weeks. If you want to enter into the kingdom, your righteousness must exceed, must outclass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And the specific commandment that Jesus is dealing with here, the specific commandment in view, is the sixth commandment of the Decalogue, the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, which was, thou shalt not murder. Now, every good Jew would have been very well-versed in God's law, like we are. This probably isn't new news to you this morning, that God says, thou shalt not murder. We know that, we understand that, as did every good Jew. Matter of fact, everyone who stood listening to Jesus' sermon this day would have been in full agreement that the penalty of death for a murderer was right. That the penalty that God imposed for someone who took the other life was good and right. The issue that Jesus puts his finger on, so to speak, is that the scribes and the Pharisees were seeking to restrict the application of the sixth commandment to the act of murder alone. That's what Jesus is pressing here. Jesus is getting past the facade, he's getting past the beautiful building, and he's, he's prying into the recesses of our hearts. Lest we think that we are righteous in ourselves, lest we trust in our own self-righteousness, Jesus tells us, as he did the scribes and Pharisees and those sitting in his hearing, even though you may not have committed the act of murder, though you may not have committed the specific deed of murder, you're still a murderer. You're still a murderer. Jesus called foul on the scribes and Pharisees' man-centered interpretation of the law. You see, the scribes and Pharisees considered themselves to be good. And therefore, as they looked at the law, they thought themselves to have abided by it. But what Jesus is teaching here is the true application of the law. And Jesus is teaching us that the true application of the law is much wider, for it includes our thoughts, for it includes our deeds as well as our actions. In other words, what Jesus is saying here in verse 21 is that it is completely possible to be innocent of taking a life, but yet be completely guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. It's completely possible to be innocent of taking another human life, but yet at the same time be completely guilty of violating or transgressing or trespassing the sixth commandment. As you can imagine, those who were standing around were startled by Jesus' words. I mean, you can almost put yourself there. The low, rumbling crowd would have immediately turned to a deafening silence as these words rolled out of Jesus' mouth. Eyebrows would have furled, arms would have been crossed. What did he just say? Would have been the question. 
Did he just say what I think he just said? Would have been their thought. Because the scribes and Pharisees' view of righteousness was largely external, their view of themselves was exceptionally complementary. Friends, we are not estranged from that same temptation. If our view of ourselves is basically that of a self-righteous view, then we will think of ourselves in complementary terms all day long, every day. What Jesus is saying here is that you're guilty. In a single sentence, what Jesus does is he shatters any illusion of self-righteousness that they or we might possess by declaring that our anger, which is the precursor to murder, renders each of us guilty of murder and deserving of a murderer's punishment. We're guilty, every single one of us. And so you ask yourself, and I think we have to deal with it here for just a moment, well, what about, what about anger that isn't unrighteous? Is there ever a time in which we can be righteously angry? And the answer is obviously and a resounding yes, it is possible to be angry and yet not sin, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.26. It is. You see, the emotion of anger isn't intrinsically evil. We know that because God himself gets angry. The psalmist writes this, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 711. We know that anger isn't isn't inherently evil. It's not intrinsically evil because it is an emotion that God himself feels. We see the anger of Jesus as he sweeps the temple clear of robbers who defiled it. I mean, here Jesus is filled with indignation, the dishonor of God, and the disconcern for his holiness. And I would say this, friends, as creatures made in the image of God and redeemed by the blood of Christ, we too should be angry when God is dishonored. Matthew Henry, a well-known commentator, writes this. He says, if we would be angry and not sin, then we must be angry at nothing but sin. And we should be more jealous for the glory of God than for any interest or reputation of our own. That's an important line to remember. If we would be angry and not sin, then we must be angry only at sin. Far too often, we become impassioned. Far too often, we become inflamed. Far too often, we are sparked to anger because someone steps on our perceived rights. It has nothing to do with sin, far too often. It has nothing to do with the dishonor of God, far too often, but the fact that someone has gotten in our way, and it inflames us. It makes us angry. There is an anger that is not only righteous, but that is required by God, and that anger must be confined to sin and the dishonor of God alone. We must be careful that our anger is motivated by God's dishonor and God's dishonor alone. See, that's the fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Let me ask you this question, though, friends. Do you find yourself becoming more angry because the honor of God is maligned, or do you find yourself becoming angry far too often because your rights have been transgressed? Because someone has gotten in the way of you getting what you want when you want it. You see, that's the very anger that God is dealing with. 
here in our text. That's the very anger that Jesus is putting his finger on here. Jesus isn't talking about righteous anger. Yes, there is righteous anger. And yes, we should be filled with indignation when, when the name of God is maligned. But what Jesus is getting at here, what he's exposing in our hearts, is that all too often our anger is precipitated because others get in our way. Because we feel like someone has transgressed me. Someone has stepped on my perceived rights. It's fueled by pride. Our anger is fueled by vanity. Our anger is fueled by hatred. Our anger is fueled by malice and a vengeful, retaliatory spirit towards the person who gets in the way of us getting what we want when we want it. And so what I want to do here is I want to deal for a few minutes, and I've talked about this in past messages, but I want to talk about the heart of anger. It's one thing to just say Jesus is getting at the heart, and he's saying that, that, that the, the act of murder isn't, isn't what I'm talking about, but it's anger, really, that makes you a murderer. That's great, but if we went on and we didn't peel another layer of the onion back and talk about what's below the surface of our anger, that would be a travesty. That would be a travesty. And so I want to take a few minutes here, and I want to talk about the heart of anger. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. It all comes out of the heart. If we stop for a moment and think, and I'd ask you the question, is anger a fruit or is anger a root? Is anger a fruit or is it a root? Think about that for a moment. I would submit to you this. I would submit to you that our anger is just the visible fruit of an idolatry factory that resides in our heart that never goes offline. I mean, just chugging along 24-7, an idol factory in our hearts. Consider this truth then. I would tell you that unrighteous anger, which is what Jesus is putting his finger on here in our text, is a response to failed idolatry. Unrighteous anger is a response to, it's what I do when my idol factory is inhibited. It's the response of failed idolatry. Let's talk about an idol for just a second here. What is an idol? This could be a whole series of messages in itself. Let me just summarize it for you in one sentence here. An idol is anything that you, that you believe that you can derive your hope from, anything that you believe you can derive your purpose from, anything you believe you can derive your security from other than Christ alone. Anything you look to for, for satisfaction, anything you look to for fulfillment, anything that you look for for worth and acceptance that is outside of Christ, that thing is an idol. That thing has become a functional God to you. And we oftentimes bow down at its altar. Now, what happens is, is when we're bowing down at that altar, maybe it's the altar of acceptance, maybe it's the altar of praise, maybe it's the altar of financial security, maybe it's the, 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 the altar of the way others view me and my appearance. When you're bowing down at that altar, Worshiping that functional God and someone else comes and rocks the altar and all of a sudden you see your idol waving back and forth, about to fall and crash to the ground and shatter, do you know what happens? It makes you angry. 
That's what I mean when I say unrighteous anger is the fruit of failed idolatry. Most times, you get angry. If you trace it or track it back, you can pin it to a particular idol of the heart. That someone or some circumstance has bumped up against. And because you fear the falling and the crashing and the shattering of your idol, because you love your idol and so do I, because you worship your idol and so do I, you become angry, you become impassioned, you become inflamed. That's why I would say that anger is just a fruit. It's not the root. You know what the root is? The root is the idol. The root is that which is shaking on the altar. Anger is just your response to its, to its failing. Make sense? Uh-huh, uh-uh. Yeah, good. Good, good. We've got to understand that. Because just to talk about anger, we can talk about it all day long, and then we can come along and we can say, well, we're supposed to put on and put off, so I need to put off my anger, and I need to, to put on a spirit that pleases Christ, and I need to put on forgiveness, and I need to put on long-suffering. That's great, but what is below the surface that you need to deal with? Because if you never deal with the roots, the fruit will always continue to bloom. I mean, you've probably heard the illustration before. You, you, you go and you, and you disrobe, so to speak, an apple tree of all of its apples. Have you changed anything about the apple tree? No. All that's needed is sunlight, water, and time for it to begin producing the same fruit over and over and over again. I mean, you could go hack the apple tree off at the base And given enough time, given enough water, and given enough sunlight, you're going to have a new tree that grows. Unless you get down below the surface and do work on the root level, all you're doing is changing what's visible and what's not invisible, which is the very point that Jesus is driving at here in our text. Like, guys, you haven't murdered anybody? Great. But you're wrong because the roots of murder exist in all your hearts. And it exists in mine. I'm always challenged by Romans 125. Paul says they, and I insert my name here, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Do you know, friends, what you and I end up worshipping? Who we end up worshipping when we exchange the truth of God for a lie? Everybody take two fingers like this. And do this. We end up worshiping ourselves. When we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve created things, namely ourselves, rather than the creator. And when you and I end up worshiping you and I, when when we're the ones that need to be worshipped and honored and revered and respected and served, ultimately what we're doing is we're deifying ourselves. We're treating ourselves as little gods, little demigods. And when someone steps in the way, we explode. When others don't treat us like the little deities that we think we are, because we worship ourselves, we get angry. Let me just give you some, some, some classifications of idols. So as we're peeling back the onion here, uh, let, me, let me give you some categories of idols that at least the seeds of these reside in all of our hearts. Uh, number one, uh, reputation idols. And maybe you don't write them all down. Maybe you just listen for the one that, yep, that's me. You write that one down. Reputation idols. 
These are the idols that are revealed when situations or people disrupt our carefully constructed reputation. Boy, we all carefully construct our reputation. We like to keep it prim and proper and pretty and in place. But when someone or when a situation disrupts that carefully constructed reputation, it may be a a reputation of a hard worker, a reputation of a good housekeeper, a reputation of a godly husband or godly wife or godly parent or wise counselor or peacemaker or whatever it may be. Whatever part of your reputation that you love and worship and adore and admire, when someone comes along uh, and disrupts it, you get angry. Those are reputation idols. That's a category of idol in our heart. That's, that's, we're getting down to the root level here, okay? How about control idols? Control idols. These are revealed when situations or people disrupt your plans or your organization. I struggle with this. I'm relatively type A, like I's dotted, T's crossed, things in order. And when things are disorganized, when things are, are in a disarray, it rubs up against my idol. And I respond accordingly. And I may not lash out at someone, but what goes on in my heart is just as important as what comes out. You know, you, you may think, and I think this way oftentimes, that your way is the best way. You may rarely ask for help. You may micromanage everything and everyone uh, because it's got your name associated with it. And you don't want it to fail because you love your reputation, because you have a reputation idol too. How about lordship idols? There's another class or category here. These are revealed when you, when you react to the fact that people aren't serving and catering to your every need. In other words, you, like I, think you're a little God. And when people don't respond to you and when they don't think you're a little God, it frustrates the tar out of you. How about money idols? These are revealed by your use of money to feed your desires or your status. And when anyone gets in the way, uh, of you earning what you think you deserve or using your money to, uh, to further your reputation or whatever it may be, you, you get angry. Let me just give you a couple more here, and I'll, I'll save the description, but there's health idols. Health idols. Pleasure idols. Fear idols. Gift idols. Those gift idols, those those are ministry-related idols. Idols connected to your serving or your teaching or your personal ministry or your evangelism or your discipleship or your hospitality. What happens? What happens when you fail at the things you think you're gifted at? Well, if you've bowed down to the altar of gifts and you're worshiping there and you think you're failing, you'll respond accordingly. Or when someone else tells you that you failed, maybe somebody else gives you some feedback that's hard for you to accept or swallow. How you respond will reveal what's in your heart, right? Luke 6.45, I've challenged you to memorize it before. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. How we respond when someone corrects us or challenges us or gives us feedback says a lot about what's going on in our hearts. So just peeling back the onion a bit, okay? If, If all we do is say stop being angry, we're missing it. We've got to get down to the roots of our anger and ask the question, why? What is the cause? What is producing this? And I have to do surgery at that level instead of at the fruit level. Okay? Can you see how your anger is connected to your idols? I hope you can here. See, we, we oftentimes exchange the truth of God for a lie, and as a result, we worship and serve ourselves, and anger is just the fruit of, of unrighteous, failed 
idolatry. Let's talk about our mouths here for a few minutes. Point number two on your outline is this. Jesus not only puts his finger on our murderous hearts, but he puts his finger on our murderous mouths. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is putting his finger on our mouths here. Right? Matthew chapter 15, out of the heart come murder and slander and immorality. Well, Luke 6.45, out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Not only does Jesus put his finger on our hearts, but he also puts his finger on our mouths. He wants to deal with the way that we speak, which is inseparably connected to our hearts. Your mouth, your mouth, friends, serves as a barometer to your heart. You want to know what's going on in a person's heart? Be a good listener. Be a good listener. Okay? Let me kind of break this text apart here. First, Jesus says, everyone who is angry, everyone who is angry, angry is the word orgizo. The idea behind the word has to do with a brooding, simmering anger that's nurtured and it's not allowed to die. It's, it's that anger that we just continue to toss pieces of wood on the fire of. It's that anger that we just continue to squirt lighter fluid on. We just keep it aflame, and it just smolders and smolders and smolders. It's bitter. It refuses to forgive. It's the anger that cherishes resentment and that wants vindication. The writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, he says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness... There we're getting subterranean again, right? We're getting to the roots, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Well, see, it's the root of bitterness that causes the trouble of anger displayed. Okay, So the writer of Hebrews is just in one verse there, Hebrews 12, 15, illustrating the whole idolatry to response picture for us. Jesus says that when we're angry with our, with our brother, when we're orgidzo, and we nurture that anger and it just smolders and simmers and it's unallowed to die, he says that we'll be liable to judgment. That's some strong language right there, friends. That's some real strong language. You see, I think what he's saying here, and there's probably multiple ways this could be interpreted and interpreted faithfully when Jesus says that you'll be liable to judgment. I, I would press this uh, for you here. I think that God will judge us for the log in our eye when we judge our brother for the speck in his. We'll be liable to judgment. We'll be liable to judgment. Jesus says everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable. And then he goes on. Look at the text again. He says, whoever insults his brother, it's the Greek word raka. It's a term of vilification here. There's not a great English, English equivalent to it. That's why in some of your Bibles, it's actually just transliterated rakah. If you have the English Standard Version, and maybe some others do, it translates it as an insult. But some of your Bibles actually say rakah, because there's not a great English translation for it. But it carries the idea of, of calling someone an empty-headed person, or calling someone a worthless person, or stupid person. It's slander, is what it is. 
That's what Jesus is getting at here. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you hate your brother in your heart, you'll slander him or her with your mouth. It's anger that spills over into slanderous speech. You see, to slander or to speak ill of a creature that's made in God's image is to slander or speak ill of his or her creator. To slander or speak ill of another person who is made in God's image is ultimately, at the end of the day, to slander and speak ill of that person's creator. We could transpose that right back onto point number one, too. When, when, when you are unrighteously angry, angry at an individual, you have forgotten that God in his sovereignty has allowed that individual to come into your life. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, you're angry with God first. All sin is first vertical and then horizontal. Jesus is calling us to the rug here for our murderous speech. Oh, friends, we, we spent much time in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And Paul deals with this in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4.29, anybody have it memorized? Therefore, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful or useful for building others up, that it may give grace to the hearer. We want our words to be gracious. Words are never idle. Matter of fact, words are always either building up or tearing down encouraging or discouraging, pointing people towards Jesus or pointing people away from him. There's no such thing as an idle word, my friends. And let me remind you that we will have to give an account for every word that rolls off our tongues. We're accountable. Jesus goes on here and he says, whoever says you fool, so you're not only angry, it's that anger that boils and simmers. And not only do you, do you insult or slander your brother, but whoever says you fool. The Greek word here is moros. It's where we get our English word moron. Okay? Carries the idea of being dull. Carries the idea of being heedless or disobedient. It would appear, if, as you do a study of these words here, that to call a person rakah is to insult his intelligence, while to call someone moros is to insult that person's character. Friends, even though our hurtful, angry words may never lead to the ultimate act of murder, we need to be clear about the fact that they are tantamount to murder in God's eyes. Angry words are just the ugly symptom of a desire to get rid of someone. Remember I said uh, that we get angry when someone gets in the way of our, of our idols, when someone steps in the way of our perceived rights. And so when we use ugly, vilifying speech, when we slander a brother or sister, when we speak ill of them, ultimately what we're saying is, I wish you were dead. I wish you were out of my way. I wish you were gone. I wish you were not on my radar. I mean, that's, that's what we are, in effect, saying here. And Jesus puts his finger on her and he says, murderer, murderer. If you were given the right opportunity, you would do it physically. Murderer. Such an evil wish, that idea of I wish you were dead, 
revealed by our words is a breach of the sixth commandment, my friends, and it renders every single one of us guilty and liable to the penalties which the murderer himself exposes himself to. Not in a human court, since anger is not a visible charge, but in God's court, before the bar of God, who sees all things. You see, I think we need to be real careful, too, at not justifying our sin and saying, well, just because I didn't act on it or just, just because I didn't say it and somehow, somehow lessens the weight of the charge. Reminds me of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. It says that we're all laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He knows our heart with exacting precision. Every thought, every motivation, every word that rolls off our mouth before it ever does, he knows. He knows. We're guilty before his bar. Now, look at what Jesus says here. He goes on and he says that those who call their brother Moros, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Jesus not only extended the nature of the crime, but he also extends the nature of the punishment for which we're made liable. Now, the question is, what is meant here? What's meant here by Jesus' words will be liable to the fire of hell? Well, let me tell you, this is challenging to discern, okay? And various commentators have translated this uh, or have commentated on this text in, in various ways. But let me offer this thought to you. James, the writer of the book that bears his name, James speaks to us about how the unguarded comments that we make, those, those, that, that failure to control our tongue, it's like a little spark that sets a forest ablaze. Some similar imagery here. This is what James says. He says, the tongue it's a small member, but yet it boasts of great things. How a great forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. James 3, 5 and 6. You see, once we give in to murderous speech, all hell can break loose. Here's what I mean by that. In a sense, we give the devil authorization. We give him a warrant, so to speak, to step into our relationships and to ride upon our anger. If, if we are embittered and impassioned and we, we refuse to forgive and we harbor and we smolder, then ultimately what we're doing is the very thing that Paul said back in Ephesians chapter 4 again is we're giving the devil a foothold. That's why Paul challenges us not to let the sun go down on your anger. You know, I, I hear so often, I hear this in counseling sessions, you know, I, I, just, I just need time. Well, friends, time doesn't solve relational issues. Forgiveness does. Time doesn't do anything but let you and I sulk in our sin. Not only is today the day of salvation, but today is the day of reconciliation. Today is the day to extend forgiveness. Today is the day to put to death bitterness and to absorb the blow that may have been pointed at us and to offer grace instead. Today's the day. If we, if, we, if we give time, we give opportunity for the devil to step in and he just pries a wedge that, 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 that causes a divide to be even deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in our relationships. 
Friend, time's not the answer. Humble forgiveness is the answer. When we open the door to Satan, we give him a foothold, and things can quickly get out of control. And in this sense, the fire of hell is set loose in our relationships. Is there any smoldering going on in your relationships? I would encourage you to deal with it today. Deal with it timely. We'll get to that here in just a moment. I think we could also interpret this phrase, Jesus says, we'll be liable to the fire of hell in light of 1 Corinthians 3, 15. Paul says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as though through fire. You see, everything that we build with wood and hay and straw, it's going to one day be burned up, Right? In other words, our sin, though it doesn't result in the loss of our salvation, it does result in the loss of reward. And so in that sense, if we, if we allow anger to fester and smolder in our relationships, any reward will be burned up, liable to the fire of hell. Let me try to give you some application here, friends. When you're tempted to speak words of anger, and we all are, Matter of fact, for some of us, and it might be me, we'll be tempted before we ever walk out those glass doors this afternoon. When you're tempted to speak words of anger, stop and ask God to give you the grace to focus less on what's been done to you and instead to focus more on what's been done for you. When you are tempted to react, when you are tempted to be angry and harbor bitterness and hold a grudge or to speak in a malicious way to your brother or sister, stop in that moment and ask God to give you the grace to focus less on what's been done to you and instead to focus more on what's been done for you. In other words, remember how great a forgiveness you've been forgiven. Paul tells us again in Ephesians chapter 4, could almost take this text and exposit it through Ephesians chapter 4, but Paul tells us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see, the answer to unrighteous anger, friends, is number one, dealing with our idols, and then number two, being quick to offer forgiveness. Those are two of the key components in dealing with unrighteous anger. We've got to get down to the idol, and then we've got to be humble and offer forgiveness. When we're angry at others, at least in that moment, we've stopped being in awe of our own forgiveness. At least in that moment, we've stopped being in awe of our own forgiveness. We've stopped marveling at the grace that God has shown to us. We cease to be amazed by the fact that despite our failures, despite our sins, that God has been gracious and merciful to us and that he does not treat us as our sins deserve. You see, friends, our anger, it's doubly sinful. Because it's not just an idle problem, but it's also a forgiveness problem and a thankfulness problem. Number three on your outline. Jesus puts his finger on the need for immediate reconciliation. Puts his finger on our hearts, he puts his finger on our mouths, and then he puts his finger on the timing, which is so critical. Look at verses 23 through 26. Jesus says, so if you're there offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there. Before the altar and go, we're going to have an opportunity to do that here in just a few minutes. Be reconciled to your brother, Jesus says, and then come and offer your gift. Come quickly 
the terms with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penalty or the last penny. See, Jesus gives us some practical application here. If anger and insults, if angry murderous hearts and angry murderous words are as serious in Jesus' eyes as the act of murder, then we must seek to avoid them at all costs and to take action to deal with them as speedily as possible. Jesus gives us two scenarios to help flesh this out. The first scenario is the church house scenario. The second scenario is the courthouse scenario. Speaking about the church house here, Jesus' illustration, it takes place at the temple altar. We don't have a temple altar today, but we do have a church house that we meet in where we come and we offer unfettered worship to our great God. But Jesus' illustration takes place at the temple altar. For our purposes, if you're here at church, you're in the middle of worship, and you suddenly remember that your brother or your sister has a grievance against you, look at Jesus' words in your Bible. I want to underline these. It's not sinful to write in your Bible, by the way. Jesus says, go at once and seek to make it right. In other words, don't don't wait until the service is over. Go seek out your brother or your sister and ask them for forgiveness. You see the order here? It's go first, come second. Go to your brother or your sister first, and then come and offer your worship. You see, friends, I fear that all too often we are more excited about ceremony than we are with integrity. We get far too excited about ceremony and coming to worship, but we forget about the integrity of our hearts. That's the issue that Jesus is pressing here. Before you come, go have high integrity and deal with the sin that is between your brother and you or your sister and you. Why do you suppose this is the case? Why do you suppose that Jesus takes us to the church house first? Well, friends, I think the answer is simple. It's because sin affects our worship. There's no way around it. Sin in our relationships, sin in our horizontal relationships affects our vertical relationship with God. Reconciliation must precede worship. Think about the the, the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah. Just listen to this, Jeremiah chapter chapter, uh, 7, verses 9 and 10. God says, will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal? And then go after all the other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on in all these abominations? In other words, God is saying, may it never be so. Go first, come second. Jesus secondly takes us to the courthouse. This is the illustration here of an unpaid debt. Jesus says, if you have an unpaid debt and your creditor takes you to court to get his money back, it's advantageous of you to settle the accounts while you're on the way. In other words, do it immediately. Because if you get there before the court, the judge is going to rule in his favor. You're going to be thrown in the debtor's prison until you can pay every penny back. And you can't work and earn a wage from prison, so you're going to be sitting there for a little while. And so instead, before you ever get before the judge who will ever try your case and who will find you guilty of not having paid your debt while you're going, on the way, he says, seek to settle your debt. Seek to settle your debt. Worship is affected by our relational sin. That's the courthouse illustration. 
And so Jesus tells us, deal with it immediately. That's the courthouse illustration. That's the courthouse illustration. Friends, Jesus isn't content with the mere letter of the law. That's what he's pressing here with the scribes and Pharisees. They thought they were obedient. They thought of themselves in high regard because they had obeyed the letter of the law. They hadn't physically taken someone's life, but Jesus tells them they're guilty, and so are we, of violating the spirit of the law. Jesus brings us face to face with the fact that we're guilty, and he lets us feel the full weight of our guilt. But, but, praise God that Jesus climbed on Calvary's hill, and he paid for our self-centered, prideful, murderous thoughts and words on the cross, friends. Praise God that he did that. See, we deserve the fiery hell that Jesus speaks about in our text, but Jesus laid down his life as our substitute. Jesus bore the full weight of God's wrath in our place so that we could be free. 